1: That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 99 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zune or Stitcher or right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the inevitable wave of dread that any rebel base sitting in the targeting brackets of the Death Star must feel, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan B. Butler.
0: Hey, everybody. That would explain the pool of urine at my feet. Wait, (laughs)
1: what? (laughs) You're in luck. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or those simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we explore, and even plunge into, Dawn of the Jedi Eruption by John Osrander, as well as the Death Star Owner's Technical Manual by Ryder Wyndham, Chris Reef, and Chris Trevasse. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundowns. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance.
0: Hmm, spoiler-free on these two topics, given how small they are. Um, okay, I would say that Dawn of the Jedi Eruption, uh, first of all, where you can find it, you can find this included within the text of the Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void novel. It's the novel itself, then it includes Eruption, which is not by Tim Lebon, it's John Ostrander writing this, the guy that writes the Dawn of the Jedi comic series, and then you have your preview of Crucible in the back of that. You can also find Eruption with some exclusive art by, of course, Jan Dersima in the pages of Star Wars Insider number 141, uh, the issue from May slash June of 2013, so just a little bit earlier in this year. Uh, as for the Star Wars Death Star Owner's Technical Manual, or I guess maybe it's the Haynes. Star Wars Death Star Imperial DS-1 Orbital Battle Station Owner's Technical Manual. There's a massive amount of text on this cover here. Um, that in and of itself, you can buy uh, individually, published through Lucas Books and Haynes, of course, uh, through Delray Books as well. The uh, price tag on this one being $30, which is something that I'm sure that we will wind up talking about. Uh, full disclosure here, of course, uh, this is a book, actually both of these uh, are books outside of the uh, insider that I had certainly gotten as a uh, review copies through um, Del Rey and that sort of thing, so uh, we can talk about price, but it's not something that was actually paid uh, on this particular end. I would say that if we're going to go non-spoiler, Eruption does a pretty good job of giving us what amounts to a kind of like most short stories, a kind of pointless throwaway story. Its only real connection to anything being the fact that it, at the end of that story is when Lenore Brock heads to Tython, where we wind up finding her en route in Into the Void, and it sends uh, Hawk Rio to Fury's Gate, where he is when the events of Force Storm start. But otherwise, there's really not much to the story, but Ostrander does a pretty good job of describing the nature of, in a sense, how the Jedi, or however you're going to say it, and the Jedi that we know uh, without the apostrophe, tend to look at the Force. There's a differentiation there that I find kind of uh, Mm -hmm. nice, the way that he plays that out. As for the Death Star Owner's Technical Manual, uh, again, not a whole lot to to say about it. Non-spoilery. Suffice to say, it does introduce at least a couple of minor new continuity tweaks into things for the Death Star. One uh, somewhat new controversy, or I guess an old controversy, brought back again uh, for the Death Star 2. And if you are looking for a lot of new continuity information, if you're looking for the Death Star Owner's Technical Manual to be something like the Death Star Technical Companion from the West End Games RPG, look elsewhere. That's not what this is. This plays out much more like the Millennium Falcon Owner's Workshop Manual released in the same sort of Hanes, uh automobile-style guide uh, that we got, I guess it was, what, in 2011. So, I don't know. Uh, both of these worth a look. But because they're not bad, but neither are necessarily things that I would put on my must read, must check out, must purchase list.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I had some minor little things there. I I, I feel eruption kind of worked as a, a filler. Like you say, you know, it doesn't give you too much. It could be the pointless story, but it works as a filler episode kind of, if you will. A tie in of sorts when you've got aspects of, you know, Hawk comes from the comic. He's not actually mentioned in the book. Uh, and yet Lannery is in the book, but she's never mentioned in the comics, so you've got this to kind of work with it. I like that aspect of it. Uh, You know, when we get into it more, uh, where it's placed, I, I'm curious about that. Uh, But I, I liked it. I think, you know, John Ostrander did a really good job. He works the balance angle much better than Tim did. He made it very easy for me to understand in a very short period of time. Uh, I got done reading Tim's, and I had a feel for the balance, but I didn't feel like I really... felt like I understood you know it's one of those things where the teacher's like yeah you get the concept but you walk away going do I really though I don't really think I do you know but when you read John's it's so short and he really nails it with Hawk's character that that it it made sense and I was like okay I could apply what I knew from Jedi in the future to this in the sense of how they work with their balance and how the balance affected the Jedi or the Jedi of that era so that was kind of cool as well uh when we get to the you know the Haynes manual I you know I, I like how it's got a lot of information. I did not have the the opportunity to get the Millennium Falcon one. I wish I did. Um, I'm curious because of the two. I don't think this one would work so much as the Haynes manual because of its largeness. The station being so big, I don't think that the Haynes manual really works to sell that in universe type feel that with the Millennium Falcon one. Uh it just seems like you know the manual should be much bigger in a lot of regards but when it comes to information I look at it from the RPG the Wizards of the Coast angle those uh, source books and stuff It's chock full of really cool goodness and it's about the same price as some of those that I would see so I I don't know I'm I'm kinda on the fence there as to what which direction I go
0: now I will say that I'm totally with you on that whole idea that it's weird for the Death Star to get a manual like this Um, you sort of have a sense with the Millennium Falcon Hanes manual that this sort of makes sense that maybe you would have a guidebook about, you know, the different ships in the line up to the Millennium Falcon and then information about it. Because Han Solo is a major historical figure within the Star Wars saga and such. And, yes, it would make sense for a YT-1300 to have a guide. You know, I can go pick up a Haynes guide or something similar to it for, say, my 2001 Mustang if we needed to. Um, I'm assuming they probably have one out there for my 2013 Kia. Um, But in that case, you know, it sort of makes sense. The Owner's Workshop Manual. So if you're going to tinker with it, here's some more information about your vehicle. Even though calling it Millennium Falcon instead of YT-1300 is a little odd. The Death Star thing, though, from a realistic standpoint, doesn't make any sense whatsoever in an in-universe standpoint. Really, the Empire is not going to put out an Owner's Technical Manual to the Death Star. It's just not going to happen. Instead, what we have is something that is... Uh, It's presented as if it's sort of a combination of bits and pieces of information from various sources. It is a much more cursory view than what we get with the Millennium Falcon because, again, of how much, uh, how many systems the Death Star would have to have. I guess you could say that if the owner's workshop manual for the Millennium Falcon, hence workshop, is designed to be something a little bit more like an owner's guide or an owner's manual like you would get with a new vehicle, the Death Star owner's technical manual, uh, technical instead of workshop, it kind of makes me think of a a tour guide more than it is a systems guide, kind of a, uh, and to your left you'll see the trash compactor, and down here (laughs) this is the uh, detention area, etc, etc. It's sort of a uh, a highlight reel of different elements of the Death Star, more so than it is you know the standard guide. They're about the same size from a page standpoint um, there's a $2 price difference. The Death Star Guide is $2 more expensive than the Millennium Falcon one, but uh, I'm not sure why that is unless it's just the fact that, you know, there's possibly been some price changes in the book industry over the last couple of years. As I said it's not a comprehensive guide by any means. It is worth a look. It is kind of interesting, but if you are someone who like me, you're looking for a lot of good new continuity information. You're not going to find a ton of new stuff, but we'll get to that when we get to the spoiler uh, angle there, yeah. and we can talk a little bit about how writer Windham's approach to these books um, straddles a line between a couple of different possible approaches.
1: Yeah, I mean the Haynes the Haynes approach feels too gimmicky for me, and I, I think in that regard, the Death Star being the next Haynes manual was a mistake. I, I think like. Like, if they're going to continue with the Haynes manuals, it should be smaller ships, nothing of this size. I, I do like the idea, though, like you were saying, like, that's an uh, introduction to kind of like they handed this out to all the new Moths kind of thing. Well, you're about to join the, the Death Star team. And so, before you come aboard, we want you to read this, go over it with a fine tooth comb, and figure out your ins and outs of the Death Star and the way it works and the technical aspect. Uh, I, you know, I like the drawings, the illustrations, things like that. That was great. But from that in universe standpoint, you know, it did not work for me. And then I just looked at the whole fact that they did this as a Haynes versus doing it as any other kind of source material book kind of, it, it just, it just came across like a gimmick and kind of, kind of shattered that, that in-universe feel that, you know, I I thought I would be getting with Millennium Falcon and stuff, but I think though it gives them an opportunity to kind of retool that approach. And if they stuck to smaller crafts, you know, go with the Jade Saber or, you know, uh, lady luck or, or the outlet Rander out no outlander. It was a right. Which one was it that? Dash's ship.
0: Dash's ship was the outrider. Outlander was uh, the hit. (laughs)
1: Yes. So that, I mean, there's so many different little ships that I would love to see get something like this or even like little fleet ships. You know, I mean, you could do the same thing with TIE fighters and stuff. I mean, you've seen it to a degree in other books, the uh, cutaways the, and those type of things, the blueprints and stuff. I always like that kind of stuff. And so the idea of a Haynes manual, you know, is great. But like you said, with the Millennium Falcon, one, why didn't they call it the YT-1300 and, you know, make it a little more, you know, make in universe sense, but that's where I question, you know, the Haynes aspect. I, I've never picked up an actual Haynes manual. I get the uh, the Chicklin or Chitlin or something like that that they have, which are much bigger, very comprehensive. I don't know if that's the same thing that you get with the Haynes one or not. So it's definitely a cool angle that they're coming from, but with the size of the ship, I don't think it translated as well as the Millennium Falcon one did. But we'll definitely get more into that as we go. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph?
0: I think you overestimate their chances.
1: Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go.
0: Alright, so let's talk eruption here. Eruption is a... Well, tell you what. Let me give you the summary of eruption that I have on the Star Wars Timeline Gold right now, and then we can pick apart what this story is, in a sense. Uh, my summary goes, on the moon Xerist above the planet Obri, O-B-R-I, uh, Jedi Ranger Hawk Rio seeks a missing child, Oma Desane, while his fellow Ranger Lenori Brock, from Into the Void, oversees negotiations between Desane Mining, led by Desane Patriarch Emin Desane, and its manual laborers, led by Arco Santos. The plan to settle disputes between the family and the miners had been to have Arco's oldest son, Bram Santus, marry Emmons' youngest daughter, Oma de But now, Oma has gone missing. Hawk discovers a ship owned by his crime lord brother, Baron Volnos Rio of Xicaqua. Believing that his brother might be trying to increase the value of his mining operations on Obrey's other moons by decreasing the value of de mining, he tracks down the kidnappers. As a nearby volcano erupts, Honk uses the distraction to attack her guards, killing them and rescuing Oma. Back in the negotiations, Lenore is able to reveal the traitor in the Desain household that set Oma up to be kidnapped, their resentful servant, Betolo. When it becomes clear that Oma has no intention of marrying Brahm, to whom she was offered without her consent, Lenore pushes through an alternate solution. Brom will foster with the Desains, and Oma will foster with the Santas family, so that both sides will have a voice within the household of the other side of the mining business. As business on Xeris concludes, Hawk heads for Fury's Gate, while Lenore is called back to Tython for a mission that will change her life. Um, okay, so what do we have? It is sort of the stereotypical, um, there are two sides negotiating. Uh, if you want to disrupt the negotiations, kidnap a family member of one of the sides story, plus the, oh, there's an arranged marriage, and of course, the children had no say in it, so one of them doesn't want to go through with it. ...type of story. Um, In just about every respect, this is a standard run-of-the-mill formula we have seen over and over and over. The only thing surprising about this story is the fact that when they find uh, and—when Hawk finds and rescues Oma, Oma didn't arrange her own kidnapping to get away from the marriage. That is the only part of this that even remotely deviates from formula— On this type of story. So from the standpoint of being an intriguing, suspense-filled, action-packed, awesome Star Wars story, this story pretty much fails. It is absolutely formulaic. On the other hand, it manages in the way it describes the characters and the way that they act, such as Hawk Rio especially. We have a very good sense of who the Jedi are and how their acts as negotiators are somewhat different than, say, the Jedi, no apostrophe, order. Um, especially when we when we have, for instance, instances where Hawk's about to uh, go into battle, and he says that uh, holding his sword in his right hand, the ranger let the balance within him slip to the dark side. The idea that he is sort of, uh, he's recognizing the light and dark side, and he's controlling where he falls on that spectrum as he moves to where... Um, he needs certain abilities or certain things that draw on one side of the force versus another. So from a Absolutely. world-building standpoint, it's pretty interesting. And I like the way that it ends in a way that sets up what's coming in into the Void. Um, you have a standpoint there where he says, uh, oh, where's that last little bit here? Uh, Hawk says, I'm heading out to Fury's Gate, replied Hawk. It was the outermost planet in the system. Great generation ships left from the small world seeking a path through the maze that was the core and looking for ways back to the rest of the galaxy. The settled worlds jointly maintained a station there. I like to look out into the stars and meditate, he said. A small shadow passed over Lenore's face. My brother used to look out at the stars and wonder if there was any way back to the rest of the galaxy. He was never very happy on Tython, she said softly. She was quiet for a moment, then shook it off and said, It was good working with you, Ranger Rio. I look forward to the chance to do it again. Hawk nodded. I do too, Ranger Brock. The Force be with you. Lenore smiled. And you, she replied. The Jedi then crossed to their waiting ships and took off into the star-flecked skies." So we have this uh, that moment of her mentioning Daly and Brock, her brother, so that if you were reading this in chronological order, which would be this, then Into the Void interspersed with um, The Adventures of Lenore Brock, that little short story that was online, and then sort of interweaving as it gets towards the end with Force Storm, this would be a nice foreshadowing of what's to come for Lenore. So there are things the story does right, and I particularly like the artwork in the insider version of it. But the story by itself, I have a hard time calling it a good story because it is so amazingly formulaic. I mean, it's literally a facepalm level of formulaic. I had the same level of groanitude as in watching one of the most recent episodes of, uh, of Homeland. Having char- a character talk to Claire Danes of all people, make a reference to, you know, this isn't Romeo and Juliet, which of course she played in, and thinking, schmack, please tell me they're not going a Romeo and Juliet route with somebody in this, this story. I don't know, I just, there is so much about this I should like, but the formulaic nature of it makes me groan every time I think about the story.
1: Well, I, I think about Star by Star. You know, and when it came out in the paperback version, they took recovery and put it at the beginning of the book. I would love to see them do something similar in this regard uh, because I think this would make a great, it's short enough, unlike you know, recovery was a much longer short story than this. So it kind of like, you know, when you're reading the book, it was like, Oh my gosh, are we ever going to get into the book? You know, but this one's so short that I think it would really work better to place it at the beginning of the book. So you can kind of get that little moment of a tie in and then go right into all the other events. Uh, but you know, you talk about balance and there's another part farther on in that same scene where, uh, you know, Hawk preferred not to kill when he had the option, but there was no time and no other choice. Still the darker part in him exulted and he struggled to bring himself back to the balance. And it, and it brought me to this idea, you know, when I'm reading this, I'm struck by the thought that all of these Jedi, they have a relationship and experiences with the dark side. You know, something that the future Jedi, they wouldn't do or, you know, the the only ones that were close to doing that would be the New Jedi Order. You know, you most common seeing that in the New Jedi Order with a bunch of people that have experienced, you know, the darker side of life and things like that. Unlike Yoda's era Jedi, where they took them in at such a young age, they never had any relationship with the dark side. So that was interesting to see that, you know, every single one of the Jedi in this era all have experiences with the dark side. And yet, you know, from what we see from the EU standpoint, it's like, you know, you mess with the dark side, eventually you're going to fall. Yet these guys didn't fall. They were always keen on that striving of balance. And I like the concept because it gives me hope for the New Jedi Order era Jedi. I mean, granted, you know, Luke has come back around with the whole, yes, there is a dark side. We got to watch out for it. But I do like the fact, like, you know, look in iJedi where Koran Horn uses fear as a weapon to, you know, help him out through his mission, but not to hurt anyone. Uh, you know things like that like there are ways to use that and keep a balance and and I don't know I found that was an interesting little back and forth in that regard uh you know it was is very curious but you know you mentioned formulaic and I have to wonder you know is that because this is John Ostrander who is typically doing you know scripts and stuff for comics and does some really good ones but you know, is, I'm, as far as I know, this is his first foray into short stories for Star Wars stuff that's not in the comic format. Could this be part of that transition of the way that, you know, he would do the storytelling in comics kind of coming across in books?
0: I would think so possibly. I mean, it definitely, it's, uh, this short story reads, you can sort of tell that it's written by someone who has written comics. It's very straightforward. Uh, the action is right there kind of in your face. Um uh, the dialogue, a lot of the stuff that needs to be said is said as opposed to being uh, in characters' thoughts, in the narrative itself. Um, and again, I think it works. There's just there's something about how formulaic it is that causes the issue for me. But the writing style itself works pretty well. Um, I would also note here that you know, th- this is a guy, he's not just a Star Wars comic writer. We tend to think of him in that sense. He's been around in comics for ages, um, this is the guy who was responsible for turning Batgirl into Oracle, for instance, uh, in the DC universe. Um, this is a guy who, um, I mean, it, it, I, I find his take on, I, I think, why he's so good at being so clear with the perspective of how the Jedi are different than the Jedi Order, uh, particularly in this story where we've got some narration to go with it, not just comic scripting. Uh, he studied to be a theologian, I mean, he studied theology intending to become a Catholic priest, and eventually wound up as a writer, kind of an unusual turn of events that leads to him going on a very different life path than he had planned. So to have these types of things in here I think works perfectly, and it certainly is right there within his wheelhouse. Um, it's just I, I wonder at where this transition goes. And we saw the same kind of thing. There were some instances where we were like, hmm, and with some of the stuff that we got with uh, John Jackson Miller. Not, I, I don't think it was... Quite as pronounced because it wasn't quite as much of a formulaic issue with it. Um, but I remember Knight Errant, the novel, bothered me, whereas I really liked the Lost Tribe of the Sith storylines. Um, you have to wonder if at some point uh, John Ostrander is going to do more forays into Star Wars prose writing and possibly aim for a novel at some point. My guess is not. He seems certainly more within his element uh... and enjoying himself, apparently, because he's still around within Star Wars comic writing. But it would be interesting if we saw maybe something else in this era, maybe like a Lost Tribe of the Sith type of anthology series, where he maybe tells more stories dealing with either Lenore or some of the characters from the uh, the comics, or maybe even something as an end cap or a bridge once Dawn of the Jedi as a comic series eventually ends, something that helps us connect time periods like what Lost Tribe of the Sith did.
1: Or even at the Legacy era. I mean, the Mandalorian story hasn't been told, and that was you know that was his little bread and butter there. Uh, You know, I was thinking also along the lines of, you know, the whole Disney acquisition, you know, what's going to go on down the road with Dark Horse Comics? Is Marvel going to get the license? That was something that when that first came out, you know, I was always in that panic. Well, then John Jackson Miller started writing books. It's like, hey, okay, John's still on the team. Now you've got John Ostrander doing this as well. And it's kind of like I like that idea that, you know, if we can get these these writers from Dark Horse that have wrote great stories to write short stories for Lucas Arts, not Lucas Arts for Lucasfilm, and the Delray side of things, I, I, I like it because you kind of bring them in your camp, and then it's like, okay, if we end up, and I'm not saying that we should, but if they did drop Dark Horse, you would still have these writers working for you, in a sense, that has been removed from Dark Horse, so you, I don't, I don't know if there's a, a legalese angle that they're working around, but it seems like this would be the way to go about it. You're like, well, we've got them working, they've, they've made some Delray books they've done some short stories here Uh, you know like hey why not have them work for Marvel now because uh, I don't know I just I've, I've had that feeling that it really doesn't matter too much from the artist standpoint in comics going from one camp to another I mean I've seen many artists that have worked on you know one comic from like DC go to like you know Marvel or other places. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know how the logistics of that works, but I kind of wonder if they're working that in, like, you know, how can we get a lot of these good story writers kind of more entrenched into what we're doing?
0: Except I got to say, if, if the fear with the Disney thing is over the whole issue of whether or not the star Wars license goes from dark horse to Marvel, I think you also have to add in there, whether, you know, Del Rey slash random house still has the star Wars license. In the future, because Disney has its own um, publishing line at this point, uh, authors like Dave Barry, uh, I think uh, uh, Cal Ripkin wrote a book through Disney. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've got this whole issue of well, if everything is up in the air when the next round of contracts come around, then what can we expect, if anything? I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still one who basically just assumes that you know what, with Episode Seven coming. The post-Return of the Jedi EU is blasted out of the water anyway. It shall be gone, unless it's assumed to just be a separate continuity. Uh, right now, we have but the But what weird... about
1: origin stories, though? I mean, any origin story that goes back before yeah, exactly. the origin original stories Yeah, Origin stories
0: are going to do that to some of the other stories. I'm wondering if it, it, it's just going to be like a new EU. And there's a part of me that sits back and wonders if this has already started happening. Um, because, I'll put it this way, I am in the process of reading the, the stuff as they come out of Star Wars Volume 2... Um, by Brian Wood the stuff that seems like it's not messing or not meshing with just about anything. Oh, really? That's where the name for Rogue Squadron came from now? You know, stuff like that. Oh, really? That's when the Tie intercepts were Oh, that's when the Executor was actually out there. Oh, so so the Death Star is etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's all these other issues. Oh, look, here's another guy as we'll see here in a moment when we start talking about the Death Star technical manual. Oh, here's another freaking guy who worked on the Death Star and was so instrumental in it. Um When I ask Leland Chi about continuity issues in just about any Star Wars publication, he generally provides some sort of insight into it. Uh, With this series, I've basically been told, wait and see how things play out. He can't really discuss anything about this series right now from a continuity standpoint. I don't know if that means that this person's been just given free reign, and the continuity is just going to have to deal with it and they're going to turn around and try to fix things perhaps later and retcon things together later. Or if what we're seeing is perhaps the beginning of something that is sort of a continuity unto itself or a continuity that's meant to be separate from the rest or what. Um, but that's the only time I've ever gotten an answer like that. Uh, and it leaves me kind of scratching my head as to whether or not it's possible that Star Wars Volume 2 is the beginning of the end for the current continuity in a sense and that we are just sitting back here. Pretending it's all somehow gonna wind up being okay. Between Rebels, Episode 7, Origin Story Films, and possibly Star Wars Volume 2, I see little hope that we are going to have a chance to see the modern EU expand very far. I would not be surprised if Force War were the end of Dawn of the Jedi. I would not mm-hmm. be surprised if we get one or two more arcs of, say, Legacy Volume 2, and then it's over. I don't think we will ever get Sword of the Jedi, the novel trilogy. I'm really of a mindset to say that I think that over the next two years, we're going to see the winding down of what we currently think of as Star Wars EU, as Star Wars official continuity. Whether that means a a hatchet job of coming in and chopping things out and trying to fit things back together, or simply a clean break of continuity, or what, I don't know. But I do not see any way that it exists the way that it exists now in the future. I, I simply... Can't see it happening. Same same thing, reason why I sit back and, and sort of say, really, when it comes to having no plans to try to fit the old Clone Wars stuff and the Clone Wars cartoon series stuff together. The comment was always made, once the series is over, we will work on putting it together and there will be some type of definitive timeline. Now the answer is, there are no plans to do that.
1: Yeah, that's scary. It's well, all unraveling. Also- Disney's also said they have plans on launching a book series already based off of Rebels uh, with that uh, mm-hmm. p- publisher that you were talking about. So, you know, there is that as well. It's like, will, will they just do just the Rebel books on that series or will they just decide to branch out and do other books in because, general? Because
0: the spinoff books and the spinoff comics for the Clone Wars cartoon series turned out so well. So well yeah. that they ended both lines prematurely.
1: <laughs> exactly. Now, you know, for Eruption, I, I again, I say I would like to see it at the beginning of Dawn of the Jedi when it comes out in paperback. I think that would uh, serve the story a little better. Uh, I liked the campiness. I thought that it fit the era well, uh, you know, the story while being, you know, like Nathan said, a time-honored little tradition there and some storytelling. I, I thought it worked. So I liked it for what it was. It was short. It was sweet. It wasn't too long. It was just enough to get you in there. You got enough feel of the characters. And like I said, I felt that John did a much better job of explaining balance to me in just that little short story than Tim did in the entire Into the Void. So, you know, I, I liked it for what it was.
0: Yeah. It's very much a, if, if Tim LeBond's great um, contribution with Into the Void was a massive amount of world building for the Tython system, then in this sense, this short story eruption, while formulaic managed in its prose to do a lot of world building from the standpoint of who the Jedi are in relation to the Jedi that we know and love. Uh, for the rest of the saga
1: yep so with that we're going to move into our Death Star end of this Uh, there was a lot of really cool things about this that I liked Uh, I liked the images there was a great image of uh, the interrogation droid as it was bearing down on Princess Leia and she's like "Ah!" I loved it so much I had to share it on our Facebook page it was just classic Uh, a lot of really cool technical layouts and stuff like that a lot of information that I was not aware of uh, you know, like I I, I always assume that most of the inside of the Death Star itself actually had you know, barracks and things like that. And it and turns out almost all that stuff was on the outside on the city scroll. So that was very interesting. Um, the, the, the way the, skitty, the city scroll itself worked, like I had a feeling like it might've been modular. Like they could have built a lot of these, these city type things and then floated them in and attached them to the death star offsite kind of thing. Like I, there was a lot of fun stuff in there. A lot of things that, that we needed to know and a lot of things we didn't necessarily need to know that it was just fun to learn.
0: Yeah, it makes for an interesting but unusual book. Like I said, it's kind of odd to think of it in universe as being what they say it is. Um, if you're not familiar with it, Haynes—it's uh, J H Haynes and Company Limited—is uh, a UK company that does guides like these for cars and, and the like. Um, it's published in the US by Del Rey, but the Haynes name is on it. That's how it's being published in the UK and whatnot. It's—it's um, it's an odd book. I think what we see is there are sort of two different poles when it comes to Star Wars books and continuity. Um, you've got people like John Jackson Miller. Um, who will tend to seed things in, in a J. Michael Straczynski sort of way because they're building up to something bigger. You have someone like a James Lucino, who adds a lot of stuff into his stories to manage to make it connect to other things. You have specific projects meant to accompany other ones, like Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void, as it connects to Force Storm. You have big multimedia projects that are meant to fit together, like The Force Unleashed One and its various incarnations. Same thing with Two Shadows of the Empire and whatnot. Um, uh, there are some authors who just sort of bring things together and try to link things together continuity-wise. I would say when it comes to guidebooks or guide articles, uh, the top trio of those would have to be Dan Wallace, Jason Fry, and Abel Pena. Um, They have a tendency to, when they're doing a guide, link a bunch of stuff together. That's what made something like uh, The Essential Chronology worth picking up. You may already know a lot about Star Wars continuity and it just feels like you're reading summaries, but there are little nuances in there that you may not have seen that link things together. Same thing with the Essential Guide to Warfare. It's not just about the different types of weapons and tactics. There's all kinds of little tidbits in there to link things together, some of which are sort of new continuity uh, ligaments to link all the parts of the continuity together to make it feel like it all flows as one seamless whole, whereas before, maybe you had a couple of bones that were just sort of scraping together. On the other end of that, though, you then have people like, gosh, I would say Martha Wells. Perfect example. Uh, Empire and Rebellion, Razor's Edge is a Star Wars novel that could have been written in 1980 or 1981. It could have been written around the era of the Han Solo adventures, Lando Calrissian adventures, and Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Because it was, uh, for lack of a better term, continuity inoffensive. It linked to nothing. It meant nothing. The characters develop not one iota. Um, It is basically a throwaway story like we see with a lot of short stories, only this one was a full-blown novel. Um, It has no purpose where it is. It's just sort of there to say, hey, see, we saw the movies too. Here's the characters as they were pretty much in the movies. Now move along, move along, nothing more to see here. Um, someone who sort of purposely tries not to slam into other continuity. Then you got things like Brian Wood, I guess, who's um, sort of beyond the poles where it's, uh, it's I'm not going to pay attention to continuity, but I'm also going to make sure that, while, that I don't spend any time to make it inoffensive. You know, I'm not going to pay attention to previous continuity and to hell with it if I slam into it. I think Martha Wells at least was, I'm not going to pay attention to previous continuity, whether she's timid about it or if that was part of the plan. But at least I'm going to make sure it doesn't run over previous continuity. Writer Wyndham is sort of in the middle between these two poles. Um, when he's writing things like the Star Wars biography books, like Wrath of Dark Maul, Life and Legend of Obi-Wan Kenobi, those sorts of things, Um he tends to... He doesn't go overly involved in references like you would get with, say, James Luceno and Darth Plagueis. But instead, the Lucinopedia thing. Instead, he does what you know Jason Fry tends to do, which is he sort of creates those new ligaments, those new linkages between things. So for instance, if you're reading the uh I guess Wrath of Darth Maul is not necessarily a good example because there's a lot of new stuff in that, but something like the Luke Skywalker, a new hope, the life of Luke Skywalker thing. Um, not a lot of new events but linkages between events and how Luke goes from one event to the next and that sort of thing, uh, little uh, vignettes into his life and such. When he's writing a guidebook, though, he tends to usually just kind of summarize information that we've already seen, it feels like, kind of give us stuff we already know, but do it in a new way or a more concise way so all the information is together. Um, that's why he does things, I would think, um, like that ultimate visual guide, and that sort of thing, because he's good at compartmentalizing stuff to make these books that the hardcore Star Wars continuity people are going to look at and not necessarily find a lot of new continuity in, but which are good in broad strokes, especially for fans who haven't been around quite as long or for new fans who are wanting to get into the continuity and see sort of the bigger picture of things. And I think it's that approach that he takes to this as a guidebook. A lot of what's in here is old news. Or it's very, uh, it's stuff that, you know, you didn't know before, but maybe you necessarily never thought about before like uh oh what's a good example of this uh page 80 here's what the wall in one of the corridors of the death star looks like here's what the things are that are on the wall and here's how they're modular etc etc and here's a screenshot from the film that shows it moving on um that kind of it's it's not fluff Because it's good new information, but it's also not continuity-laden information that a lot of folks listening to this show are going to be really hyped for. There's really only two things that I noticed in here that stand out as what I think are new information or information that was put in a very concise way for the first time. And thank Mm -hmm. you very much to Ryder Wyndham for doing this, because this is what I expected the Death Star novel to do. The Death Star Mm -hmm. novel that wound up not fulfilling its promise at all of weaving together all these different backstories for the Death Star. This book does a pretty good job of doing that just in the first handful of pages that we've got. Um, But I think there's two new pieces. One, we learned that after A New Hope, Bevel Limulus was tasked with creating basically a prototype of the ship-mounted super laser that would be used on the two Eclipse-class Star Destroyers that were at the time being built at Kuat and Bis, the ones we see in the Dark Empire stuff. And that his team, most of whom didn't know they were creating a prototype, uh, come to call that prototype weapons platform the Tarkin, after Grand Moff Tarkin. Um, and that the idea that having the Tarkin from the Marvel comics uh, was also intended not just to be a prototype of the super laser-type thing from the Eclipse, but also um, to help divert Rebel attention from the construction of the second Death Star. Second, I think it's new that we've learned that the reason why the Maul installation's prototype Death Star was created in the first place, the one we used to think was the prototype, and then they built the real Death Star only for them to turn around and decide, oh yeah, the Death Star plans, they're in Episode 2, and yeah, they're building the Death Star by the end of Episode 3. Um, the argument here is that Tarkin uh, ordered it created when it was noted that Imperial engineers were having a lot of difficulty adapting Geonosian plans for the Death Star into an actual working model. So it's like they slow down the work on the real deal and create this prototype as a way of reviewing the schematics for the feasibility from basically top to bottom, and to create a working prototype so that when they got to the point of some of the things like the super laser and more of the of the, the real deal Death Star, they wouldn't run into problems then. They've already sort of practiced it on that prototype. So it brings the history of it together very well. It adds a couple of new tidbits to it in the opening pages. But overall, again, continuity fans are not going to find a lot of stuff that's new here. But people who are just looking for a general overview of the Death Star will find a lot to like here.
1: Yeah, I was enjoying the heck out of it. I mean, there were little things like uh, a reference to Vader as Palpatine's lieutenant. I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm like, oh, I never saw him as a lieutenant, really. But okay. Uh, You know, and and how that power struggle worked. Uh, We get to see in one of the uh, opening letters, we see Tarkin get promoted to Grand Moff uh, and how the Empire adopted the. Tarkin Doctrine. I thought it was a clever way of Palpatine to, you know, kind of hide what he's doing in history by making Tarkin kind of take the fall as being the one who initiated the Rule Through Fear campaign. I'm like, kind of slick, like, you know, like, it, this is totally a Palpatine's point. But that's been, been around story.
0: forever, though. The Tarkin yeah. Doctrine idea, Rule Through Fear, that's been around since the West End Games RPG.
1: Yeah, that's but it. I love the fact that they're, you know, pointing that out again and the fact that Palpatine was so slick about letting Tarkin be the one because it didn't seem like that was Tarkin's idea it almost kind of felt like it was like a Sith mind trick and you know, like I'll have him send the documents so I have a record you know kind of like what he did in in uh, uh, Revenge of the Sith in the novelization how you know he had that recording device recording what Mace was saying so when he played it back it was played out, back out of context I, I don't know I got that feel out of this thing it was like because I not for once did I really think that this was Tarkin's idea
0: Now, that's the thing. A lot of this felt like it was, like I said, kind of old news presented in a new way. Honestly, my favorite part of this, and it's actually my favorite part of the Millennium Falcon one, too, is before they even get to talking about the real Death Star in most respects. Um, Page 7 gives us a history of the Death Star, which is very cool. Kind of starts to pull things together. But then they go through what amounts to the build up to the Death Star through other designs. They give us a page with information on the Trade Federation battleship. Uh, from Episode 1, the Trade Federation core ship that we saw, the ball piece in Episode 2, the Eye of Palpatine from Children of the Jedi, uh, the Torpedo Sphere from way back in the original RPG, the Tarkin for the Marvel series, and they give us some background on the key personnel, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin, Wraith Sinar, Bevelimulus, really kind of cool to see the way that they show those, although it's kind of weird that it's the uh, uh, the Scorpius version of Grand Moff Tarkin that they're showing as opposed to uh, to the, uh, the Dracula one. Uh, or I guess I should say, what was it? Did not he play Doctor Who at one point? Uh, we have the Death Star prototype in there and then it gets to the actual Death Star and all kinds of great cutaways and such. Uh, Chris Reeve and Chris Trevass did a really good job as they always do creating really good art for this. That, that seems like it goes very much hand in hand. With a lot of the images that we see from production photos or uh, shots from the film itself, especially when they do things like what you were talking about where we see Leia through the eyes of the uh, interrogation droid or we see the Dianoga from the eyes of a scanner nearby.
1: Here's one on page 34 of the Tractor Beam Reactor Coupling and it goes as revealed by visual data obtained by a military communications complex a Gilvani 3 Imperial Stormtroopers did not detect the Jedi Knight Obi-Wan Kenobi as he shut down tractor beam 12 in sector N6 of the Death Star. It's like really you've got you've got a camera that caught that and nobody's nobody red flagged that? I mean, I like the fact that they used the picture and they found a way to keep it in universe, but at the same time, it's a little funny. Uh, there's another moment like this when they're talking about the uh, exhaust port where they give the fact that the exhaust ports were ray shielded and that the rebels, they figured out, well, hey, you know, a, a proton torpedo can get past. That's like really the empire wouldn't have figured that one out, too.
0: You would think I mean, there's there's really good moments like, for instance, and this is probably my favorite and most amusing part of this is that, yes, we've got screenshots, uh, like, for instance, on page 18, it's a screenshot from episode 2 where you've got a Poggle the Lesser with the Death Star plan showing up behind him. Yes, we've got new cutaway things, kind of like the type of things we'd see with one of the essential guides to vehicles and vessels or to weapons and technology and so forth. Um, and yes, we've got new things that are very lifelike-looking by, like, Chris Travas, for instance, like the Leia from the, the point of view of the interrogation droid. But if you look at, for instance, page 37 and 36, there are shots of this that are presumably showing the surface of the Death Star. Well, what are they showing? It's the model, it's photographs of the model of the Death Star that they ran the camera over when filming episode four and six. Um, So it's kind of amusing to look at that and know that basically what we're seeing is a model because we've seen plenty of times the images of that camera on the little track zooming over this landscape. And yet here they're showing it because I mean, that is the Death Star landscape. When they show it in the films, it is the model. Um, so why not use a photograph of the model to show it? I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Although, there is that one thing, uh, and we should probably, you know, at least touch on it. Um, speaking of using the film as a reference or pictures of the film as a reference, there was one controversial thing that this book did. Controversial in that it kept to old ideas rather than more recent updates. To ideas. Uh, and we see that happen, you know, from time to time. In, in oh, they actually
1: use the word canon the way it's meant. What came first
0: is matters. That's what matters. <laughs> Basically, what we, we were told way back in the day in the West End Games RPG, I think it may have been in that Death Star Technical Companion, either the first or second edition. I think it was 91 and 93 are or, or those two. Um, I actually originally owned the very, very first version of that for a while before I sold it off many, many years ago. Uh, but the old RPG said that the Death Star 2 was 160 kilometers in uh, diameter. Okay, 160 kilometers from one side to the other going through the center point. Um, The EU tended to stick with that in most of its guides. But then you got Inside the Worlds of the Star Wars Trilogy, which basically took this stat, threw it out the window, and said, we're going to look at the scaling of the Death Star compared to the previous one in terms of the way it was built by ILM. Sort of a, an out-of-universe, real-world approach to how the sizes are supposed to compare. And they came up with a new number that basically said that, no, 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 it's not 160 kilometers in diameter, it's over 900 kilometers in diameter. That's a pretty big difference! Um, and eventually, the official site, back before it became a dumbed-down Pretty Pictures website, and had the heavier data bank updated its information to show that new number Um, Star Wars Insider also republished that same number but then this manual went back and went to the older 160 kilometer number which presumably is also what it used when doing its size comparison chart which is pretty cool on pages 120 and 121 that shows the very large Death Star 2 the smaller Death Star Uh, the Death Star prototype alongside it, along with the Torpedo spear, the Tarkin, the Eye of Palpatine, um, the Executor, an Imperial-class Star Destroyer, and Cloud City. Um, And to me, honestly, I don't really care. Um, I like the idea of there being consistency, but the number's been changed before, so now having it changed back, not a big deal. What I'm concerned about simply is, was this something that was an intentional change, or was this an instance where they went to an older source, not realizing there are newer sources and managed to screw things up. From what I, don't I read, it was, intentional.
1: Okay, so it was I, intentional. I read an article. Yeah. Yeah. Leland was talked to about it and they, yeah, they all got together and it was intentional going forward. That they were going back to that original one. Um, so yeah, I'm curious as to the why they decided to go back, but that to me, I, I'm in the same boat as you when it comes to size, that isn't gonna throw me off. I mean, we're... size matters not <laughs> exactly. Yoda's down. Which is the
0: thing, though. And I know there are people out there who are into that. We are. I, I talk about us being the continuity guys. We're continuity from a story standpoint, guys. I guess we want to see yeah. it all fit together in a storytelling standpoint. We know there are plenty of minor inconsistencies all over the place. That's why I think, to me, this type of thing or Luke Skywalker is this many feet and this many inches tall. No, over yeah. here it says he's one inch taller kind of stuff. That stuff doesn't bother me.
1: Yeah, that's a fudge number. That happens in life and in Star Wars.
0: I just think about, uh, what, was it, uh, what was it that uh, that was it was referred to com- uh, repeatedly in the 2000 election? Fuzzy math. Um, <laughs> it's just, to me with this though, um, I mean, I-, I can see where the issue is. But again, I'm not someone who is overly concerned about those types of issues because they pop up so often. With Star Wars, it's been popping up since really the beginning size issues as people sort of making their comparisons. And then you've got people like uh, uh, Curtis Saxton with the uh, uh, technical website that he did, some of which winds up getting worked in the continuity when he got a chance to work on some official Star Wars publications. Some fans take the stuff that he did as essentially gospel, even if it isn't a, fandom produ- uh, a, a uh, official production. Um, In fact, I remember that was one of the big things back that got people railing against me on the original Chrono Radio back somewhere between 2002 and 2007 when I made the note that, you know, Curtis Saxon's data should not be taken as canon fact because Mm. unless it shows up in an official Star Wars publication, it's not canonical. It is a fan production, just like the Star Wars timeline gold. Nothing I say in there does anything to affect the continuity unless somebody uses it to do something in the official continuity, like using it to jump off of for something like the dates in the, some of the dates in the Essential Atlas, or apparently, uh, it being used by Pablo Hidalgo for the Essential Reader's Companion and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's a fan project. And I think in this case, a lot of the, the frustration comes to the fact that it's, yes, there are contradictions with numbers like that within Star Wars publications, but I think it's made all the more exacerbated by the fact that when fans are really into those types of statistics, they tend to be really into them, and they are doing all kinds of numbers themselves, essentially as fan productions, or whatever you want to call it. It's fanon, not canon. They're making up their own numbers, or they're they're figuring out numbers themselves, and when it doesn't fit with what is out there, they flip. Kind of like me with the dates of Dawn of the Jedi. I still don't see how this is supposed to fit and how many times that they were saying something contradictory to what it is, it's still going to bother me. But you just kind of have to sit back and say, okay, however I calculated it, really doesn't matter. If this is what they're saying it is, then you know what? Fine. That's what it is. We just kind of have to go with it. Maybe that's something that I've gotten used to after years and years of doing the Star Wars Timeline Gold in, in its original form and all that kind of stuff.
1: Because yeah. to me,
0: these types of numbers, I see it, they're fudging it. I'm like,
1: yeah, they do that.
0: And just, well, kind every of fans
1: got their thing. I mean, I, I remember when the New Jedi Order, uh, tar, you know, when they started calling Coruscant Usantar as Crush of the Gods. And then all of a sudden, it, somebody was like, oh, because they named it after the Homeworld. It was like, no, in the earlier books, they said they forgot the name of the Homeworld. They went with Yuzentar as Crush of the Gods is the closest thing they could get. And yet, all of a sudden, everyone was calling it, wow, well, it's Yusin-Tar is the Homeworld's name. It's like, no, it was never said that. What are you guys not reading the book? Uh, you know, then you got to realize okay well it's just a small thing i can let this go uh you know there were little things in here that i i don't know maybe they were obvious in the films i can't remember at this point page 38 they give the reason why the rebel x-wings flew so close to the death star it was because the automated systems of the turbo lasers prevented the turbo lasers from firing because they thought that the Death Star was in the line of fire. They were programmed as a safety override to not shoot the Death Star itself. So as long as the X-Wings were staying close to the, the hull of the place of the Death Star itself those things shut off and that was why even though there were so many turbolasers, very few of them were actually shooting. They were only shooting at the X-Wings coming down at the angle. I don't know. That may have been thrown in there somewhere in the original trilogy. I don't remember that at all. I thought that was a great little bit of tidbit information there. Lots of little things like that, again, like with the exhaust port, things like that that I was like, okay, I didn't know about that. Really? Okay. Uh, They talk about uh, the the Death Star's hyperspace multiplier. Uh, You know, Bevel was wanting to get it down to three, but it might be as high as five or six. I thought that was cool because you... You know, the first time I ever heard of a hyperspace multiplier was in the uh, Wizards of the Coast role-playing games. Uh, you know, when you got the uh, Starships of the Galaxy and stuff. You know, want to get a point five? You know, I want to be like Han Solo, man. I want a fast hyperdrive. The fact that they were using this as an in-universe statistic, I thought was even cooler. Uh, you know, there's a, like, what is it, the, the the trenches and stuff like that. You know, well, you they, always well, saw they, the you, bit. Well,
0: the, the point five thing though, that was a film thing, right? To make point 0.5 past light speed.
1: Yeah, but it was never explained what the point .5 meant until, as far as I, you know, what I came across, it was in the. It the means of the you Coast know book.
0: you know exactly what it means. It means half of one. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I didn't know how it was applied. You know, I mean, that was one of those things where it threw me off. But the the, the trenches, you know, we always saw the uh, the ones that rode along the equator. Well, those are just the largest ones. There were trenches all over, including in the city sprawl, things like that, which you know kind of made sense. But you know, you always see the Death Star from such a far out distance that you never saw all the trenches. Uh, another one was they they give you a map of the turbo lifts. Uh, there were so many turbo lifts in there, and I question, you know, they give you a side view, like if you cut the Death Star in half and you see it. But if you spun that 360, would that give you? what the interior of all the turbo lifts looked like i it was cool the way that the turbo lift technology was described that actually looked like something we could be building today in real life i mean it was all maglev in in, in instances Uh, Another one was the barracks Uh, the general quarters. They had that very uh, Japanese Chinese sleep chamber feel to it where it's got a ladder and the beds kind of slide out and the bed is literally only big enough for a person to sit in there. Uh, The thing that I found funny in that though is they they also show you where the refresher is but they had the refresher door closed. Uh, I think it's just a shame you know they left that door closed. They should have had it up with all the various inside looks of refreshers brought to us by Dark Horse comic and I've been paying attention of late. You know they've got enough there that they could give us a working refresher. I mean we've had enough images of what it all looks like. Let's just go there! Don't be afraid!
0: Some kind of map of where the turd goes. Uh, <laughs> it, it follows this pipe, then this pipe, then this pipe, then this pipe. That's something you get with a real deal Haynes manual. Um, I, I like. It's funny though, there are some things, for instance, they managed to work in things. Um, uh, I was talking about how he's able to sort of make a comprehensive background for the Death Star that the Death Star novel wasn't able to pull off. For instance, on page 46, they talk about how uh, the Death Star uh, super laser uh, some of the challenges that it had had already been addressed by Project Hammer Tong, um, mm-hmm. which of course is mentioned in the short story Hammer Tong uh, that wound up in tales from the most icy Cantina, but talks about for instance the uh, Republic Force mission to mygito to get an experimental power source that we saw I believe it was in Battlefront two yeah. um, and then desolation station and so on and so on. all these great references but then doesn't reference on that same page when talking about the Death Star Super Laser uh, Tributary Beam Shaft why there's no guardrail for these guys. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's one, two, three, four different pictures of these guys standing there, and there are two different captions, but one of which talks about the protective visors that they wear, but, nothing about, <laughs> yeah, but nothing about the, uh, uh, the guardrail. Here's my thing. And this is the same thing that I have, the same issue that arises with Star Wars, with just about any um, any guidebook. And that is that this is a cool book, and it brings together tons of old information so that for the first time I really feel like the story of the Death Star's construction makes sense. The story of how they find the Death Star plans, oh, that's all kinds of screwed up still. But the story by which the Death Star is constructed, how you put together years of continuity, and the new surprise continuity of it showing up in the prequels together, I think this does a good job of of, of sort of melding that together into something that feels cohesive. But, this book came out fairly recently. We already have two more things that have been thrown into the continuity recently that are supposed to be part of the development of the Death Star. All of a sudden, we've got the whole issue from Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin, a.k.a. Darth Vader and the Lack of Plot, as I called it, um, where, hey, look, they found this new crystal, and it's going to be a or the focusing laser to be used for the Death Star. Oh, goody. And in Star Wars Volume 2, uh, we meet this guy, Tag Rogarin, who it turns out was a weapon systems designer on the Death Star, the guy who supposedly designed, or at least helped design, the super laser. Uh, the guy that Leia runs into in the ruins of Alderaan and such, in the second storyline that presumably now is being called From the Ruins of Alderaan instead of Prisoners of the Empire. Um, just in the span of a short, the short time that it took for this to come out, there's already new information that in theory could be worked into it. They are constantly playing with this. It's this whole issue of, gee, I'm new to writing Star Wars, how can I connect my stuff to something that people will care about? I know! How about... The construction of the Death Star, the finding of the Death Star plans, how the rebels found Hoth, the imperial takeover of Cloud City. How about them getting ready for the attack on Endor? How about how they found out about the second Death Star? How about how Vader found out Luke's name? There's all these different touchstones, and they just need to finally say, leave it the hell alone. (laughs) Stop going into this old trod ground, because what you're doing is not enhancing things. You are either overly complicating things or you're going in and trampling over what was there before. Mm -hmm. At least, and I think you said this, I think it was before we started recording, you made the argument that you could say that that focusing crystal from Ninth Assassin could be just one of several, and thank goodness for that, because at least then there's room for them to tell these kinds of stories repeatedly and have all the crystals go to different pieces of the super laser. But at some point isn't enough enough? For God's sake, stop with the and Death Star construction. Let this be the touchstone for what it's like and leave it at that. He's done a good job of weaving together all these disparate sources. Now stop!
1: Well, it's like Lando getting the ATAT. I mean, again, on page 46, there are eight tributary beam shafts that went into the super laser tributary beam shaft itself, meaning we have eight opportunities for those crystals to be found. Uh, You know, now we've got Darth Vader and the lack of plot. There's one down. We got seven more to go. Do we really want to know about all seven? Have we already learned about five?
0: I don't know. (laughs) If the stories are going to be as... Eventful, quote unquote, as the story you just referenced with the Adats, Buyer's Market by Timothy Zahn? Oh, God, no, please no, anything but that. If you haven't read Buyer's Market, it's that story that is told for the sole purpose of telling us where Lando got one of the Adats that is underneath Nomad Station on Niklon in the uh, Thrawn trilogy that nobody really probably ever wanted to know. But again, that's kind of like some of the information in here. I didn't necessarily need to know what the panels on the wall are like, but now we have a definitive answer. I, that is I like one thing that. this 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 is very good at giving us a definitive look inside the Death Star. But they need to just stop here because this well, is very good. Just don't keep adding to the backstory of it because all you're going to do now is run into possible contradictions.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, going with that wall. Okay, the wall, the lights that go behind that lo- wall the wall, the, the, the little rectangle or circular kind of ovoid shapes, and the white light comes through it. I like the fact they're light diffusers, but they're energy that comes from the main reactor. Basically, the Death Star's reactor had so much energy for the laser that they they bled it throughout the entire system. They had everything interconnected to the reactor. This also was a fatal flaw because when they blew up the reactor, oh, holy snap, everything's connected. It all goes up. Had it not been that case, we learned that the Death Star would have survived the explosion, but because they did that, it all went like a chain link reaction. It all went up. They also had a uh, twelve or twenty four sectors. I, I think it was twenty four, uh, where you know each one was like its own star uh, uh, star base kind of thing. And I thought it was funny when they were describing that. I almost envisioned like slices of the Death Star kind of coming out and coming together. Like you know, what if the Death Star would have been like the prototype where it was just like a, a foundry. Uh, skeletal ring and these stations actually locked in to create the big Death Star. Oh, we got a disturbance in this sector space. Well, we're not going to send the whole Death Star. Let's send Quadrant 8. You know, I thought that would have been an interesting take on it, but it was cool to just... You know, get that inside look. Because again, I did not realize how much of it was superstructure. There's a part on here that talks about the superstructure. The super when we watch in the Death Star 2 in uh, e- episode 6, when they go flying down Wedge and, and Lando and the Millennium Falcon and all that, and you see all these big pipings and stuff like that, that is what the majority of the inside of the Death Star looked like. Uh, I thought that was really cool. Another throwback too was the inside the deeper uh, hangars and they talked about how they had all these land equipment and stuff, all these vehicles, they were all inside stasis fields so uh, no dust or dirt or rodents could get on them. I thought that was cool. Kind of uh, felt like a throwback to some of the video games. Uh, I think Rebel Alliance and uh, uh, the early Rogue Squadrons and stuff where the ships were back behind stasis fields and stuff as you were selecting them. That was kind of cool little throwbacks there as well. Uh, the recreational facilities, they had a really cool look. A uh, giant Imperial logo in the middle. Kind of looked like a Calm link of sorts but again the attention to detail that went into there they had the shooting ranges things like that like I could visualize all this stuff from standing in the location just off of what they gave you they did a really good job of throwing all the layouts I really liked that it was really cool Uh, you know again another aspect was uh, they talk about the uh, ISB the Imperial Security Bureau uh, how they were like kind of like the watchdogs of the station itself uh, and how the rest of the Empire the Imperials they didn't quite trust them it you know, kind of felt like uh, the FBI, CIA, Big Brother always spying on you, that that was cool. Page 89, though, they're in the um, detention center. There is a moment where they talk about the mounted, ceiling-mounted holocam. I've always been wondering about what the heck that thing did. They give you all the details and, and it's not much, but you know, it's one of those things where I always looked at that piece when they do that scene. And I'm like, what does that do? You know, I was always wondering about that. Same with, uh, they had these little wall sconces and now I find out that they're actually, uh, embedded blast tech laser projectors. And honestly, I look at them and I'm like all the details they give you. I'm like, really, these things don't look like they would do much at all. Like they don't look like they would function well they Uh, they look like they would only shoot maybe like straightforward or have a very limited cone that they'd be able to blast. It's like, why would there was a lot of that? Why would the empire put this in their, their thing? I mean, there was a lot of uh, superiority, obviously like they didn't think that anyone would ever get inside. They didn't think anyone would ever get close enough with, with the uh, rebel ships. Uh, They talk about how uh, the, the gunners, would uh, practice all the time, but against big fleets, never against small starfighters. fighters uh, and how Tarkin had taken and arranged the, uh, the targeting crews uh, by alphabetical order because they always worked so well together that he wanted to shift it up and, and keep their training going. So it wouldn't matter who they were working with. They'd all be really good. And, Boom, he did that the same day or, or a couple days before the rebel attack ended up going down. So all the gunners had never worked with the crews before. They were all with new crews. And so that also played into why the Empire was so shoddy at getting the shots done. Because they'd practice and practice and practice and practice. They were a well-oiled machine. And what do they do? Hey, uh, uh you know, if somebody gets sick and they got to work together, that wouldn't work so well. Well, hey, let's just, let's just mix them all up and we'll just get them all to work really well together. It'll only take six months of practice to get back to where we were, but what the heck? and boom the rebels show up and ruin their day a lot of cool little tiny things like that I, I just i got a kick out of it uh again i get back to that aspect of i don't know if it really works as a hanes manual um i, I when i think of a hanes manual again i get back to the smaller ships uh i, I think this might have worked better as an rpg or a source book um you know 30 dollars as this is a source book it works 30 bucks is a as a death star manual I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I guess that's where I got to get around the wordplay in my head, because really the, the Haynes manual is a source book, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I would say that there are two things uh, as we're kind of rounding this out that I am somewhat thankful for before we before I get into the whole price issue here. Uh, one, that they do wind up at one point. Uh, you mentioned the whole uh, the inner workings of the Death Star sort of thing. There is a point at which on page 115, they actually use the cover art from the original Death Star Technical Companion from the West End Games RPG as one of the images. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I'm very thankful for the fact that on page 93 when we get that great image by, I'm assuming Travass, uh, of Leia cringing as the interrogator droid is on its way to her, that when they then show the interrogator droid and note all of its many appendages, not a single one of them is labeled anal probe. So I figured that would explain her cringing. Um, <laughs> But on the whole price issue, uh, yeah, from the standpoint of, of source books, if you're used to buying RPG books, 30 bucks is really nothing. I mean, that tends to be what RPG source books tend to be. But this is more of a standard guidebook sort of thing. Um, from that perspective, I mean, we're looking at the same price tag as the Essential Guide to Warfare. It was 30 bucks also. So from a comparison of content, this feels much skimpier than that. Um, so if you're looking I for... I be- agree with you there. Now, if you're going to measure this by content versus price, I'm not sure that this is going to be able to stack up in that sense. But it is very much like a lot of the RPG-type guidebooks that you otherwise would have seen. It's an unusual type of publication. It is $2 more than the Millennium Falcon Guide. I will say, though, that just like anything else, and again, we got these as review copies, um, you don't need to be as concerned about the price tag at this point because you can find these things on eBay quite often, for much, much, much lower prices, or if you're not that trusting of eBay, I mean, just go on somewhere like Amazon.com. Uh, Amazon, at this point, has uh, the Death Star manual that retails for $30 at uh, $19.73, with some individual sellers selling for as low as $18.38 used, although some pair of ridiculous people apparently have it up for $35 bucks as a collectible, where it's Five bucks more than in the retail prices and the Millennium Falcon guide they've got up there as a $19.75 uh, for ordering directly from Amazon, and you've got some sellers offering it new, uh, individual sellers offering it new for as low as $14.88. So both of these you can get for about two thirds, if not about half, of the actual price tag if you're to look on places like Amazon. It's not like you're going to be paying full price for this unless you purposely go to a store in which you know you're going to be paying full price for it. Um, it's very easy to find these for significantly lower. And for 20 bucks, I could see a lot of Star Wars fans wanting to pick this up. Same thing with the other one for 20 or 15 It's just a $30 price tag that I think hits people because you know it is 50% higher than if you had something that was 20 bucks. You know, add another 50% of that on top of it, there's your $30. Um... It just feels a little taken aback. It makes me kind of wonder if when the the companies start to price these things, how much consideration is given to the fact that, well, we're looking at the supply and demand for it at this particular price, but we actually are more looking at the supply and demand on the discounted price. When they're thinking about how many copies of this they're likely to sell, are they thinking of it as a $30 product or are they thinking of it in an Amazon sense, thinking of it more like a $20 product, but in order to get $20 out of it, they've got to put it at a price tag of 30. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, How much of that – how much the uh, internet buying landscape has altered the way they have to look at supply and demand and price point?
1: Hey, that makes sense because honestly, yeah – Fifteen to twenty bucks. This is would be a great steal. Uh, you almost question like, did they did they jack it up? You know, looking at the uh, the essential guide to warfare versus this, did they jack it up because this one's got a hard cover and the other one doesn't? Because that seems to be the only thing. I mean, inside wise, you don't even get I think even half the content that you do in the the warfare one. But the warfare one's got that soft cover. Um, it's also a little bigger. But yeah, 15, 20 bucks. You can find it for that. That's a heck of a good deal for it. Uh, 30 bucks. I, I say you got to be kind of more into that. I like source books. I like the role playing games. I like all those essential guides. You know, that that's the price you're looking for. I agree with you though. Look for it online.
0: Yeah. And if you're going to spend 30 bucks on this one and 28 bucks on the other one, save your money. Don't buy either of those. Get the Book of Sith Vault Edition or get the Bounty Hunter code Boba Fett book. Um, when either of those have that crazy um, electronic container to them, it's kind of hard to get Jedi Path like that for sixty bucks now. But if you go on Amazon, it's a fifty nine ninety nine price tag for book of Sith with the the Sith holocron for the book to go in, or <gasps> a bounty hunter's code that has the bounty hunter code book in it. Instead of being a hundred dollars for each of those, if you're gonna pay sixty bucks out of your pocket for a Star Wars guidebook, there are guidebooks out there that I would say I personally, as a continuity fan, would prefer. If you get these for their Amazon's type discounted prices, though, and you've already got those and you're looking at this and just wondering, is this a good buy? At the discount, yes. At the higher price tag, yeah, most fans are gonna be a little iffy. Gamers will probably be okay with it, though there's no game statistics in it.
1: Yeah, that's where I have the hard time. It's you know, 30 bucks. If I had to buy this for 30 bucks, I don't think it brings enough extra stuff that I would I would be satisfied with my purchase. Uh, you know, luckily they they gave me this one. And I didn't have to hunt it down, but I'm going to have to hunt down the Millennium Falcon one. So I'm definitely going to look more towards the route of the eBay or, you know, Amazon, stuff like that. Looking for it at a, at a cheaper price because, you know, anymore, the only books I really buy at the bookstore are the paperbacks. And I'll pay – am gladly pay the full price on a paperback as of right now. They haven't inflated that high yet, but there is that aspect of inflation. Like, you know, you say, is that really the goal here of uh, – are they looking at the – uh the less down sales, And I got to think, you know, you may be onto something there, man. Well, that about wraps up this episode of star Wars beyond the films. Thank you for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the star Wars report website, www.starwarsreport.com episodes are also available on zoom stitcher and on itunes which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it you can also find links to our episodes on both twitter and our facebook page at swb on films or just type in stars beyond the films in your search bar but no matter how you get there be sure to like our facebook page it is the best way to interact with us our home one if you will not only can you post comments to us about the show we love interacting with you fellow fans so if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions or you just want to comment to us about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at WarsFanworks.com.
0: And of course, if you want to check out the uh, Amazon.com shop that my wife and I run, it is Amazon.com slash shop slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all is one word. Uh, Lots of stuff there from her collection, my collection, that we're selling off at this point. Uh, You can also, if you've been following the uh, medical bill craziness that's been going on on our end, uh, the donations that people have been making have definitely been helping. Uh, We're trying to be as strategic as possible with this so that we can knock these out without a lot of craziness uh, being heaped onto the craziness that's already there. Um, as we wait for her to finally have her insurance as of January 1st. But if you would like to donate still to that whole situation or to follow the situation, you can follow it through posts about every week or every two weeks on the uh, Facebook page for Beyond the Films. And you can also donate still. The PayPal address is Nathan at StarWarsFanWorks.com. At this point, the community has been extremely generous, and I am very, very grateful for that.
1: Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our Audible Trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash the Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. That's right, 1,000. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. You can even help support us directly at the Star Wars Report by going to www.starwarsreport.com support, or by following the link at the bottom of each of our Star Wars Report episode posts. Now, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Sing. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that you are
0: eagerly awaiting our hundredth episode next week. And the big announcement coming with that, uh, it's going to be a pretty awesome
1: show. Or the odds that they're going to put Eruption in front of Into the Void.